if you give 50p to a homeless person in the street, uh, that is a generous act of charity. If you give 50p to one of the many uh, charities or organisations for homeless people in Oxford, uh, that also is a generous act of charity. But when you start to think, why are these people on the streets? What, what do we have to do to obviate what, what seems to us to be a very poor uh, quality of life? We don't want people living like this. What do we have to do? Then you become a philanthropist, and that's true whether you're talking about giving 50p or £50,000. So if you bear that in mind, it's that strategic giving where you're actually giving to make a real difference. In a sense, it's practical benevolence and um, giving with purpose. And back in the last century, the e Economist magazine uh, predicted that philanthropy would be a megatrend of the 21st century. So I'm here really to talk both personally and generally uh, about the challenges of philanthropy this century. So it's a personal story of my youth, uh, business years, and philanthropy. Finishing with my role as the founding ambassador for philanthropy in England in 2009-10 and now working internationally. I hope to say some things that you haven't heard before. Uh, my theme revolves around the, the idea that there's no such thing as altruism. Uh, philanthropy, we do it because we want to. It's a pleasurable act. And, and if you enjoy that pleasure, wait with your questions uh, for a question and answer session afterwards. I learned about giving very early in my life because uh, my childhood was very different, not so different. As, um, my Jewish family lived in Dortmund, uh, North Germany, uh, during a time of horrendous discrimination. And my father lost his job uh, by edict of the so-called Third Reich. Um, and uh, 50 years later, he'd still got that uh, uh, incredible letter firing him from a very senior public post. And the bad times began for our family with the family moving around Europe, trying to find a safe place. Apparently, we lived in seven countries of Europe. Um, and eventually, my parents did a very brave thing. They organized for me to come to England on a kinder transport uh, to basically into the arms of strangers, although we knew their name, or they knew their name. They didn't know what was going to happen. And they let me go from Vienna in July 1939, uh, thinking never to see me again. There's some odd things that happened during times of stress. And when war was declared in September, I was formally classified as a friendly enemy alien, five years old. <laughs> I'm a Hitler taking nationality away from Jewish families. So I arrived stateless, uh, penniless, because we went to, I mean, my mother put a Leica camera around my neck um, so that I had something which was later sold. Um, and basically, of course, without a word of English. Uh, they tried very hard. My, my father, who was quite a linguist, had taught me some useful phrases so that I could say things like, slow combustion stove. 
very useful for a five-year-old. And vine screen viper. Um, but I didn't, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, know how to ask to go to the bathroom. Of course, pain allows you to grow. And it sensitized me in ways that people who've always been affluent, never been so poor as to um, be hungry, um, really find difficult to imagine. And I was terribly lucky. I was fostered by a wonderful uh, childless couple in the Midlands of England who brought me up as they would their own. And, um, but I was left with this extraordinary um, guilt at having survived when so many died. And the fact that I was given so much really meant that I knew that I had to make my life worth saving, uh, to make my life worthwhile and to start giving back as soon as I was able. <coughs> what greater gift can anyone give than unconditional parental love? And, and they gave me that, totally, total stranger. Now, only a tiny proportion of Jews survived, so I was doubly lucky to be later reunited with my birth parents. Um, but I learned very early on that uh, tomorrow's always different. It's uh, nothing like yesterday. Nothing like today. It's going to be different. And so gradually I learned to actually embrace change. And I've worked in high technology and I actually like new things now. In 1939, we didn't know anything about post-traumatic stress. Um, so there's irrational d depression at having survived. And it is irrational. Why shouldn't one be, oh, I've survived, I'm okay. Uh, but it doesn't work like that. Um, and I'm also left with a patriotism that's nowadays a bit unfashionable. I love this country with a passion that only somebody who has lost their human rights can feel. There's a wonderful statue in Liverpool Street Station um, where most of us arrive commemorating that largest ever migration of children. Um, aged up to 16. At five, I was one of the youngest on my trains. There were about 10 trains. Um, but there were apparently, well, there were, I saw them, um, some babes in arms who were cared for by young women, 16 plus, who had done a deal with the powers that be. Um, and they brought those babies out and had committed themselves to return uh, to Germany um, afterwards to what they must have known was almost certain death. And of course, I didn't know this at the time, but having learnt it afterwards, I, I like to record that heroism and what a gift that is to humanity. Moving now to my years in business, I'm often asked for the secrets of commercial success because I started with nothing and I did eventually become very successful. Um, and one, um, one secret I will share with you is to choose your partner very carefully. Uh, the other day when I said my husband's an angel, uh, somebody complained. You're lucky, she said. Mine's still alive. <laughs> I was on Desert Island Discs last year, and basically he need never worry where I'd be marooned because several charities would very quickly come and find me. <laughs> In my first job, I went to evening classes to get my uh, D 
degree. Um, later, when I, we were planning for a family, um, I founded an early uh, software house as a 20th century cottage industry for women, a company of women, a company for women. And I pioneered the professionalism of women, um, especially in high tech, and was the first woman this, the only woman that. And I was driven not by the technology, but uh, more as a social crusade, uh, a social enterprise challenging the conventions of the time, even to the extent of changing my name from Stephanie to Steve, so that people didn't know when they received my business development letters that he was a she. My company's mature success, and it eventually employed overhead 8,500 people, uh, more, of, more than half of them in India, did become quite a large corporate. But it, that enabled my husband and I to um, improve our lives. But we didn't wish to change our lifestyle completely. And so we lived modestly with my time in retirement, spent wholly on philanthropy. Uh, my attitude to money has really changed. I'm no longer the, uh, the refugee survivor, dependent on others, individual and corporate. Philanthropy provides me with a super quality of life. I'm, as Pat will know, a workaholic, and uh, I like to be part of a group, um, to be actively busy, to spend my time with, on worthwhile projects uh, with interesting teams. Like the Quakers, I believe in the beauty of work when we do it properly and we do it in humility. Work is not just something I do uh, when I'd rather be doing something else. My company had profit sharing pretty well from its start, uh, but eventually, I eventually decided that the, my dream company should uh, entrust its destiny to its staff. I wanted the staff to help me build the company, and I wanted them to share in the success of what they helped build. So one of my first major gifts was taking the company into co-ownership. I was inspired by the John Lewis partnership, um, and I eventually got a quarter of the shares in the company into the hands of the workforce at no cost to anyone but me. I'm more proud of that than of my commercial success. It was actually very difficult to do, but we got there. Because philanthropy, to me, is a way to participate. Uh, money, time, and skills are equal partners. It's not just for the super wealthy. And the world is really as you dream it. And money is so integral to every part of our lives that when we take a stand to make a difference, it affects every part of our existence. As one of the pioneers of the IT industry, uh, I'd been on the founding court of the city's IT livery company and, and later became its master. Yes, master. Uh, the, it's an archaic term that they use for chief executive. It was, of course, Dick Whittington. Meow, Dick Whittington. 
Sir Robert Whittington, three times Lord Mayor of London and the wealthiest merchant of his day, <coughs> who left his fortune to charity and public purposes in 1423. And 600 years later, uh, his generosity is still giving help to people. Now, there are all kinds of gifts. People sacrifice time and comfort to give blood to someone else. Others donate bone marrow. Kidneys, where the genetic mix is good enough, match is good enough. And there are gifts after death. Corneas, corneas, kidneys, livers, skin, hearts. The last expression of love for others. The livery movement has a timeless commitment to charity, education and commerce, three strands. But its financial wealth is mainly rooted in the dim and distant past. And I wanted to give the young IT company um, a contemporary slant and to upgrade its charitable trust which, uh, with some serious money. So after some months of anonymous research, because, you know, if you're business-like, you need to know what you're doing. You need to do a bit of research before you give any serious money away. Um, the Shirley Foundation donated five million. And that gift did not include press and publicity, because for some arcane reason, the Charity Commission do, do not consider that to be a charitable purpose. And so I did that privately on top. And uh, was very lucky, because Man on the Moon, Buzz Aldrin, came and launched it really for me. Now of that five million, one million went to the Give the IT company a small working hall, the first new hall in the city for 50 years. The other four million went into its charitable trust uh, and it's used its benefaction in two interesting ways. Firstly to give structure to the variety of giving pro projects in the IT sector to become the charity of information technology. And secondly, to give philanthropic outlet to the uh, time and energy that every single person has available to give. Uh, members, of, members of the livery company are actively engaged in uh, giving IT advice to various not-for-profits, uh, getting an ailing school uh, up to giving them appropriate IT facilities, but also getting them up to uh, proper educational standards. And uh, indeed, in managing the academy schools, uh, which it has several uh, with which it's associated, and Hammersmith Academy uh, School addressing special needs of all kinds, from the learning disabled to the super gifted, that is formally to open on the 28th of this month. So it's an ongoing activity from the... The charity gives some grants, yes, um, but measuring members' time contributions is really much more valuable. Using commercially defined consultancy rates um, gives a leverage of about 10 to 1. A grant costing the livery company £10,000 is, with members' input, time, skills, turned into a gift valued at £100,000. 
wonderful example of embedded giving. Someone there then pointed me to my second big IT project, which the chairman has mentioned. Uh, ten years ago, I was pleased to sponsor the Oxford Internet Institute, um, which, as she explained, is a multidisciplinary, the first really multidisciplinary uh, research uh, institute in, a major, in a, any university. And that concentrates on the legal, economic, social, and ethical issues of the internet. Not the technology, but the social side had always interested me a lot more. And there are plenty of people researching the technology. So the OII, as it came to be called, uh, and they were speaking here earlier this morning, uh, are really um, breaking new ground. Because philanthropic business is like good business. I focused on the two things that I know and focus about, and one of the first things I learned in business was to focus on something. Uh, so I focused on, surprise, surprise, information technology, my chosen profession, and autism, which was my late son's disorder. It's a particularly nasty congenital condition which strikes at the very heart of, of what we mean by humanity. And the choice of where you spend time and money, um, everybody knows if it's children you're interested in, or the elderly, or animals, or environmental issues, or, or, or human rights across the world. We do sort of know, and there's very little, very little pleasure, I think, in giving to um, charities who are involved in areas that are not what you're interested in. But I do honour the many, many people who uh, support the charities. In fact, the charities rely on small donations. Who, people who commit small sums, month after month, year after year. And the millions who responded to the uh, Haiti, uh, Pakistan and Japanese disasters gave aid gave to the aid organisations. Oddly enough, I don't. I always feel a bit mean about it. But it seems that, you know, it's not something I know about at all. And so I focus on what I do know and care about. Now, materialists believe that the only things that matter are those that we can verify with our senses. And the main goals in life are correspondingly wealth and power, since the more abstract goals are much more difficult to measure. As a self-made millionaire, I do know that uh, economic sustenance is, is important, but it's not all important. And social responsibility demands that we develop a spiritual dimension to life. So what does a successful entrepreneur like me do post-retirement? I go on trying to innovate, uh, but as a social entrepreneur, not for profit. And as I started uh, this talk, uh, one definition uh, is that charity is repairing some social ill. Um, philanthropy is aimed to be preventative. And I do both. I put just as much effort into learning to give money away wisely than I did in making that money in the first place. 
And so far, well over 50 million has transmuted from figures on a sheet of paper to uh, something meaningful. Moving on with the giving phase of my life, as I've shown with my co-ownership example, there are several levels of giving. It's not just a question of money. Everyone has contacts, time, and skills to give. And for me, there was a family side to my story. I've mentioned our autistic child. He was, his name was Giles. He was a beautiful baby. Um, because of my traumatic childhood, I had aimed to give him a very quiet, serene childhood. We lived in the country. Um, keep him quiet, keep him secure. And in fact, he was so contented as a baby that at first I thought we were doing rather well. Um, but at eight months, I took him to the doctor because I was worried about his development, uh, his lack of progress. Uh, he was late in walking, late in talking. Um, and then at two and a half, a bit like the changeling in the fairy story, uh, he, over a matter of days, possibly weeks, um, he lost the speech that he had and turned into a wild, from this quiet, calm, serene child, um, turned into a wild, unmanageable toddler. And then the bombshell di diagnosis, he was severely autistic. He became increasingly difficult, um, banging his head repetitively, sometimes lashing out at us. Uh, he needed constant attention and care. And like other parents of a child with autism, the condition has come to dominate our lives. Uh, to make matters worse, uh, puberty hit early for Giles. It seems to hit children earlier every year. Um, and um, he couldn't take that at all and became really violent. And those were awful, ghastly times. And um, eventually, I cracked up. And Giles and I both finished up in hospital. Um, I came out of mine after a month and was back at work within the year, which for a workaholic is quite a, a, a big break. But Giles remained in a locked ward of one of the old-style subnormality hospitals for 11 years. And until he was 16, he attended the hospital school. But then, as the years progressed, Giles lost most of his human rights. And against the advice of the consultants, we decided to look after him again ourselves, um, this time with paid help. The company was providing me with a salary then. And progress in deinstitutionalizing him was slow, uh, but in between his extreme and challenging behavior, he was a charming innocent, uh, which was the Victorian term for people with learning disability. My, my first gift to charity, my own charity, uh, which predated care in the community by several years, was Kingwood. And classically, Giles was the first resident in the first home of this first charity. Now, it, it now supports over 50 um, adults uh, with autism or with autism, some in their own homes, uh, some in parental homes, and, and others in one of the original residential properties. 
And that took 17 years from pre-charity startup to financial independence. 17 years. And it's a salutary reminder that it's not enough to do good. It has to be sustainable. I've got actively involved in several special schools. Um, Prior's Court has been the main one, both financially and in time and effort. Uh, it took 22 hectic months from uh, inspiration to opening uh, five years of my life overall. It's the largest of my charitable projects. It has 60-day and residential pupils, both with, uh, or with both autism and uh, moderate to severe, most people would say profound learning disability. Very few of them have any speech. Um, and perhaps you can guess that the pupil profile for that school was my Charlesy. Um, and an adult learning centre has just opened earlier this month for six students, um, another six to start next year. So that's developing and growing. I'd been inspired into that educational pro project by visiting a special school in the States. And in true business-like form, I, I, I commissioned a feasibility study as to where pupils or potential pupils with autism were living in the country, and it turned out to be pretty well everywhere, um, and where the schools were. And the main gap mismatch was in the Midlands of England. So that's where the property consultants started looking. And um, we eventually uh, acquired a 50-acre um, Queen Anne building uh, in Newbury, just up the A33 uh, in Berkshire. And that led to a whole chunk of my life, resources for autism, music for autism, the all-party parliamentary group for autism, parents' autism campaign for education, allergy-induced autism, the economic aspects of autism, autism studies in several universities. Whenever there was a gap, I tried to help. Not a lot of pattern, all quality, and they all try to be a leader. Uh, each is aimed to be independent of me, uh, financially and managerially, as soon as possible. Not businesses, but business-like. For example, uh, bilingual Wales is particularly difficult for people with autism, with the where communication or its lack of it is, is, is so important. Um, so I founded and funded Autism Cymru, uh, which has guided the Welsh Assembly to the world's first ever national strategy on autism. And there's also now a chair for autism in Cardiff University. Though the Shirley Foundation sponsored the world's first disability conference on the web. And that led to a portal site, Autism Connect, with users from places so remote that I had to get out an atlas to find out where they were. Now, some charities are distressingly amateur, but I give capital as well as revenue. I tend towards funding infrastructure, whereas other people veer towards projects. So the Shirley Foundation's work is, is targeted to be pioneering, 
We never do more of the same, no matter how worthy. Um, so it includes a lot of research work and trailblazing new charities, pioneering and strategic projects that, if successful, and pioneering projects can and do fail, and if they all succeeded, I'd probably think we were not taking enough risk, but if successful, make a real difference. I've always been, tried to be generous according to my means. Generous in time and skills as well as money. Uh, in recent years, the money has been significant and it is wonderfully effective. Donations, large and small. The small ones always regular to allow the charities to do a bit of planning. Uh, and always accompanied by involvement. It's demeaning to just give money. And anyway, one wants the buzz, the adrenaline, uh, the, uh, the fun of commitment. Because I believe if you don't commit in the world, you are just taking up space. Nothing stands still, and my foundation has evolved over the years. IT is no longer part of its mission. Uh, lots of people in that space. Uh, and my focus is now purely autism. And my personal belief is that giving does need to be proactive, ambitious, and focused on results. My aim is always to be professional, to be efficient, and of course to be effective. And over the years, my giving has become more and more strategic. But I continue to have a load of fun. I meet more interesting people. I travel purposefully to more interesting places uh, and feel more fulfilled as a social entrepreneur than I ever did in my business years. My company took over 25 years before it paid a dividend. But some people have made their wealth overnight or over a year and want their giving to make a difference on similar sort of timescales. Because giving is a social and cultural activity, not a financial transaction, I never just write a check, because doing so demeans both me and the recipient. Money alone is not the answer. Sure. Giving money can be a uh, compassionate act of detachment. Uh, I try to make it a committed act of love. And starting with Kingwood, that hands-on support service uh, for my son, autism is a focus of my life. I put much as, just as much energy in learning to give away one, money wisely and take just as much satisfaction as I got for making it in the first place. One's classed as the seventh wealthiest woman in Britain, trailing Her Majesty the Queen. Um, I think the arithmetic was wrong, but um, I'm very proud to have given away enough to take me out of the rich list. <laughs> Giving is now what I do. Uh, it connects me to the future and gives me enormous pleasure. And perhaps some of you will follow my example. But linked to the altruistic, it is the right thing to do.
giving makes me feel good. And that feel good factor is a scientific fact because brain scans now can show that the pleasure centers of the brain are stimulated when we act unselfishly. If you forget anything, everything else I say, remember that pleasure giving is the essence of this talk. Gone are the days when wealthy women had always inherited or married money. Uh, my giving is not different because I'm a woman. Uh, but I do care about issues and I'm careful about them. Um, while it's nice to be thanked, uh, my focus, and I certainly notice when I'm not thanked, but while it's nice to be thanked, my focus is always on how much difference is this going to make, not on what recognition will I get. And the giving spectrum moves from no reward whatsoever through acknowledgement, prestige, and fun to tangible returns and a sniff of immortality. After a number of philanthropic projects, perhaps it was inevitable that I should be asked to serve as the British government's ambassador for philanthropy, the first ever ambassador for philanthropy. Um, historically, Britain was first in philanthropy. Uh, it's now second to the States with its go-getting culture, uh, but it could take the lead again. Philanthropy is always about values, not size or value of gift, but values. It starts with dreamings and uh, dreams and feelings. So I took a, a sort of formal pledge um, to inspire the idea uh, that giving is a pleasurable act of desire as well as compassion to help change or challenge any aspect of society by raising the bar on our capacity to be generous. As the founding ambassador for philanthropy, it soon became clear to me that uh, the philanthropists needed to have a voice. Nobody was, people sort of understood charities and they were brought into government meetings, but nobody really asked about the philanthropists. But so it was a voice independent of the organizations that we give to, uh, so that we can influence the dialogue on those things philanthropic. And to broadcast that voice to government, to the media, and to the charities. And you can see how some of those people who are prepared to speak out about why and how uh, they give uh, on the website ambassadorsforphilanthropy.com. Uh, it was relaunched as a social enterprise just three years ago. Uh, motivations are unique, so uh, each philanthropist's story is different. We're each different. You can't really generalize. Um, even the reticent Brits have evolved from we don't talk about money and what we do with it. So things have moved on. Because giving can become a vibrant part of life for every day, for everyone. And mass technology reaches people in a way that appeals to them. So do have a look at that website, ambassadorsforphilanthropy.com. Now one target is for countries around the world to appoint their own ambassadors for philanthropy because it gives a step function to unleash philanthropy uh, by giving philanthropists a voice worldwide. Both the White House and the Clinton Global Initiative are getting involved 
And overall, it seems that national ambassadors for philanthropy are an idea whose time has come. Let me now try and generalize. Wherever you go, it's impossible to ignore the reflections of our giving past. We remember the big names. The Oxford one I know is Gilbert Sheldon, who, who, after whom the theatre is named, um, the founder of the, um, the university. Um, but all of us can help build dreams and right wrongs. Um, Haig is remembered not for his militancy, but rather by Poppy Day. Andrew Carnegie is remembered not as a robber baron in the States, uh, but for what he did uh, for all the libraries in the world. And it was he who made the memorable statement, those who die rich die disgraced. There's no ought or should about philanthropy. It's just fun and want to. Um, it's community foundations help people to give on a local basis, wonderfully effective in channeling large and small donations to appropriate local causes. So hugely satisfying, satisfying as you can see the results of your giving. And there's no sort of relativity, really. The local cat's home is just as worthy of support as the global humanitarian initiative. The global economy shapes us to appreciate both people and things for their market values. So what is it that drives the giving spirit? Most of us are taught as children to uh, share and uh, to give. And this becomes important and significant in our lives as we get older, uh, when the intangibles in life are really much more significant than the material. And the gradual understanding that the world and everything and everyone in it are so interconnected, that fuels the longing to help, to share the riches in life. Some, I mean, everybody has problems making ends meet at the moment, but some mega wealthy people uh, want to limit the amount their heirs inherit. Um, I've got no heirs, so I'm free to give everything away. Because money is wonderfully effective. Um, but if we're not to patronize the beneficiaries of its benevolence, the passion and the human touch have really got to stay there. I try always to, to remember how awful it was to be expected to be, to be grateful. Um, so I work hard to give without demeaning people, without patronizing them. And though I mainly give in a business-like strategic way, it's always with a warm heart and a warm hand. I mean, what's the point of uh, uh, writing gifts into your last will and testament? I, I want to give in my lifetime. Giving is a private expression of personal beliefs. So how you give is different to how I give. Perhaps the motives hardly matter. The fact is that people give, and it's the uh, birthright and defining characteristic of the human race. 
Buddhists believe that whatever we choose to focus on, to tend, to nurture, to love, will thrive. The seeds that grow in the garden are those we tend to cultivate and appreciate. Sikhs believe in life in three equal dimensions, one of which is sharing one's time, talents and earnings with the less fortunate. The Quaker Society of Friends gives quietly, usually anonymously. Muslims give in charity rather than to, to charity. Much more difficult. And Muslims, like many Jews, uh, think of giving as a duty, not an option. The various denominations of religion have equally valid givers. The important thing is that they all give, many of them by tithe. <coughs> the golden age of philanthropy in the UK was in the late 19th century. Uh, it's British Nadia, Nadia, drop, followed the creation of the welfare state, and although our welfare state is so marvellous, it has actually affected philanthropy in a way that other countries have not followed. And its 21st century rebirth is demonstrated by its current scholarly interest. Um, there are now several degrees in fundraising, a uh, master's degree in grant-making philanthropy and social investment. This is at London's Cass Business School, which leads Kent, Southampton, Edinburgh and Strathclyde in the Centre for Charitable Giving and Philanthropy that was formally launched in 2008. The rise of interest in philanthropy also extends to digital giving. Oxford's Internet Institute held a seminar on e-philanthropy last year, since when the technology has moved on yet further to allow giving over mobile phones worldwide. And this has proved particularly effective in the aid appeals, disaster appeals. So legislation and, and, and uh, government policy can make a significant difference to the climate of philanthropy. There was my own, own appointment as the National Ambassador for Philanthropy in 2009. Uh, the green paper on giving last year, and the white paper earlier this year. Giving is learned early, perhaps as part of family tradition. Uh, devout people give dutifully as to satisfy divine will. Uh, enlightened self-interest is when we give to others and uh, so indirectly help ourselves by giving to the Alzheimer's Association or Age UK for possible use ourselves later. And that combines with the altruistic, it's the right thing to do. Uh, giving makes me feel good. I've said how my life of service is some sort of repayment, some sort of assuagement of survivor guilt. I've been given so much by strangers, what else can I do but give? Recent research shows also that corporate giving 
uh, not only helps staff morale and staff recruitment, uh, but is directly good for business. The positive branding, and brand is as brand does, uh, also leads to improved sales, new customers, more loyal customers, buying more. Uh, another example of enlightened self-interest comes with reputation, achieving fame and good report in the transitory world, or as entry into some elite group. Last November, Oxford University's campaign reached a billion pounds, and the Chancellor has a court of benefactors for major donors. Um, but it's the many alumni folks uh, that giving small amounts that have really made that wonderful figure happen. There's a plaque in the House of Commons which actually says thank you to Britain for taking 10,000 kinder transport children in. Um, we see such thanks in, in buildings and organisations um, throughout Oxford because the shields in com college windows, they mark benefactions from the time when every person of capacity had armorial bearings. It's not just something pretty to look at, it marks that it, years ago that family gave significantly. So the giving spectrum moves from no reward whatsoever uh, through acknowledgement, uh, prestige and fun to some tangible returns, like if you have a building named after you, that gives you some sort of wow, um, sniff of immortality and something which marks, I was here, I was here. The motives hardly matter, the important thing is that we all give. Why is giving always high on the list of virtues? I guess that's because anyone can do it. Uh, we might not be particularly moral. Uh, we might be partial to a drink too many uh, or have a roving eye, uh, prefer light reading to philosophy. Uh, we may or not see ourselves as all that spiritual, but we can all give. So it isn't that money is bad or good, but rather our interpretation of it. Your relationship with money doesn't have to be disconnected from you as a person. It doesn't matter how much or how little. Uh, money really can provide joyful reward with integrity. It's the conduit for all our hopes and fears. We create our most lasting legacy, not with what we leave behind, but by the, by the way we live, especially the way we live with money. And I challenge you to let your money stand for who you are. You are judged and you judge yourself by what you choose to do, by what you choose to do for others, by the reach of your compassion. And each person needs to think, what they, think through what they want to do, what they want to achieve with their donations and about the social impact. Ladies and gentlemen, we, we learn from stories. Um, they have influence. Uh, 
giving is contagious, and that's why I've shared my story. Uh, giving, giving back is recognized as one of the mega trends of the 21st century. I'm glad to have had this opportunity of addressing its 21st century challenges. Thank you very much.